6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of Jeremiah, chapters 24 and 25. I think some of you who know me, you've heard some of my previous tapes, know that uh, I was as a teen, came to the Lord as a teenager and grew up well-trained biblically. I happened to fall under some very sound teaching of some very good expositionally-oriented Bible specialist teachers that gave me some valuable instruction during my pre-college years and uh, high school years. Um, in fact, I accompanied uh, a very prominent lecturer on his tour and got a chance to ask him a lot of questions, and it was, it was a wonderful learning experience. Then I went to the Naval Academy and got into my executive career and drifted from play. We, my wife and I have lived in 22 homes in our 30 years of marriage, so you can get some idea that we, we, we moved around a little bit. Uh, but as we did, as we moved from place to place, I didn't understand why it was that we never felt home in a, in, in a, in a, in a church home. We were in Methodist, Presbyterians, you name it, all the different denominational places as we'd move from place to place trying to find a church. We're not sophisticated in understanding why it was we never were comfortable. Looking back, as I learned and grew spiritually, I, I began to realize more and more that our problem was we took the Bible literally, and most ministers didn't. And we were, to some extent, in my opinion, victimized by what I like to just, what I'll call, for lack of a better word, call denominationalism victims of a liberal theology, victims of, of churches whose focus are on programs and structure and everything but the Lord Jesus Christ and everything but a sincere, unadulterated presentation of the Word of God. Things you and I here in this context take for granted, but especially in that era, it was something that was the exception rather than the rule, and certainly something you rarely found within the, the formal denominational structures. So anyway, for, for, for 18 years, from roughly my college entrance from, say, 52 to about 1970, uh, I, uh, as I put that in spiritual perspective, was on the penalty box or in the bench or something. I didn't backslide. I didn't have the ima imagination to undertake gross sins. I don't have very dramatic, you know, testimony about drugs or fleeing jail or any of those kind of colorful things. I was just useless. You know, you know what an inoculation is? That's an imbuing of a, you know, a mild case of it to make you immune to the real thing. Well, that's exactly what was happening to me. Now, obviously, in the late 60s, we had things like the Six-Day War and other things. And I'll target about 1970, we, the Lord just really woke us up, made us very sensitive to the time we're living. All those things that I had learned as a teenager were happening. Israel was back in the land since May 1448, of course. But more importantly, Jerusalem was under the Star of David for the first time since Christ's words the week he was crucified, that Jerusalem would be trodden down by the Gentiles until the times the Gentiles are fulfilled. So we're obviously entering into a very important era, and so on. So that, you know, that woke us up, and I got close to a number of the people that, were, that you all know, Hal Lindsey, Walter Martin, and Chuck Smith, and people that were very articulate, spokesmen for what, what really is a very independent viewpoint of, 
of what the Bible is really all about. Well, I developed, as I, as I woke up to the reality of my fundamental expositional background, and uh, I, I have to be confess with you, I, had, I, I started to harbor a lot of hostility towards the denominational background that had disenfranchised me for 18 years. Now, that's, I'm not only non-denominational, if I'm really honest, I'm anti-denominational, which is probably, you know, not too constructive. But anyway, I was talking to Walter Martin one time about that. I was sort of mouthing off about how, for eight, how denominationalism had stolen 18 years of my life. And he says, Chuck, that's okay, in his majestic style, point out, that's okay, Chuck, those are the years that the locusts have eaten. And I looked Walter in the eye, and I says, that's great, Walter. Why, what do I do with that piece of information? <laughs> he says, well, Chuck, he promises to give you those back. And I shrugged that off, saying, sure, you know, after the millennium or something, I mean, after the rapture or something. He says, no, 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 in your life, he will give you those years back. And uh, he admonished me to claim that as a, as a prophecy that he was giving me, that uh, those years would be returned to me. Well, I happen to be reminded of that recently, not only because we went through Joel not too long ago, but I was also intrigued because from 19, if I get the 18 years I lost, you know, that means I've got till 1988, okay? So I've got to hurry through the major prophets in the Torah. Um, now, that doesn't mean the rapture's coming in 1988. I, I, you know, I may just get hit by a car or something, but the point is... Uh, the point is, is that it's going to be interesting to see if he's counting, you know. Uh, but I, I share that with you. I, I don't think Jeremiah had those particular thoughts as he's looking at his 23 years of faithful ministry because he's about mid-career. He's got, he's got some mileage left in that, that man. But I'm always thinking about that, is that I praise God for the privilege of having been associated with you and having the opportunity here through uh, the ministry of this unique organization here and also through the the uh, channels that have been opened up by the tape ministries that are just awesome. And I just praise God that he's given me that chance to, to repair the damage, to repair the, uh, the, the many years that I was uh, fruitless on his behalf. We got down to verse 2, verse 3. From the thirteenth year of Josiah, the son of Ammon, uh, the king of Judah, even unto this day, that is the three and twentieth year, the word of the Lord came unto me, and I have spoken unto you, rising early and speaking, but ye have not hearkened. 23 years of apparent, no apparent fruit. Can you imagine that? Verse 4, And the Lord said, uh, hath sent unto you all his servants, the prophets, rising early and sending them, but ye have not hearkened, but inclined your ear to hear. That's the reference. Now, you should always recognize that these prophets are not necessarily alone. We often think of Isaiah in the reign of Hezekiah. Well, Great, but so is Micah and Amos and others. So there's often multiple prophets. And don't assume that they don't talk to one another. You know, they're, they're servants of the Lord. But anyway, we're going to talk more about some of those couple in another chapter when Jeremiah's de being defended, if you will, from, from his, in his trial, in his inquisition. But that's getting ahead of ourselves. Verse 5. Now these, these other prophets said, They said, Turn again now, every one from his evil way and from the evil of your doings, and dwell in the land that the Lord hath given unto you and to your fathers forever and ever, and go not after other gods to serve them and to worship them, and provoke me not to anger with the works of your hands, and I will do you no harm. See, all this judgment is conditioned upon their lack of repentance, if I can put it that way. In other words, the, the promise of... Uh, um, a foregoing of all of this is always there if they'll repent. 
And, uh, of course, they don't. Verse 7, Yet ye have not hearkened unto me, saith the Lord, that ye might provoke me to anger with the works of your hands uh, to your own harm. Therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, because ye have not heard my words, behold, I will send and take all the families of the north, saith the Lord, and Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and will bring them against this land and against its inhabitants and against all these nations round about and will utterly destroy them and make them a horror and a hissing and perpetual desolations. Now, we're going to go on here, but before we, let's uh, three times in the book of Jeremiah, Nebuchadnezzar is listed as the Lord's servant. That's strange. Here's this pagan, idol-worshiping ruler called the Lord's servant. This here in chapter 25, chapter 27, chapter 43, you'll find those phrases. Cyrus, by the way, the Persian who, who later comes on the scene, is also twice in Isaiah, chapter 44 and 45, referred to as the Lord's anointed. Now, those are strange expressions of a Gentile king. So Cyrus also has this peculiar designation. But Nebuchadnezzar is spoken of by the Lord as his servant. What that tells you is the Lord is capable of using tainted vessels. That's why I'm here. One of the things you probably may not recall is there is a chapter of your Bible that was not only written by Nebuchadnezzar. Do you know that? Did you know that Nebuchadnezzar wrote a chapter in your Bible? Not only that, he wrote it in the form of a memo that was put on every telegraph pole around the known world. Um, when you read Daniel chapter 4, you're in for a surprise, if you haven't ever caught that. It opens and closes. It is I, Nebuchadnezzar, and he tells the story on himself, how through his pride, God subjects him to seven years of mental derangement. And he forecast that he would, and Nebuchadnezzar in his braggadocio invokes that prophecy on himself and, be, and, and, and uh, uh, endures a mental derangement for seven years, at the end of which he returns to his faculties, is, regains the throne, and as a result of that whole experience, announces that the God of Daniel is indeed the God of the universe. And when you read the close of that letter, you can understand why I am one of those crackpots or screwballs or whatever, that believes Nebuchadnezzar was saved. Now, I can't prove that, but it sure sounds like it when I read the way he finishes the ch Daniel chapter 4. Now, during those seven years, there's a tradition. There's no biblical evidence, but there's a tradition that his, uh, he was under the personal care of Daniel. And as you really study the book of Daniel, you'll discover that, uh, that Daniel has a deep affection and respect for King Nebuchadnezzar. And even later, when he's brought out of retirement to interpret this peculiar handwriting on the wall, he doesn't get into that before he puts down this grandson of Nebuchadnezzar saying, now, your, your granddad, now, there was a king, not you, jerk. He really lets him have it, which is, you know, kind of a gutsy. Daniel always was kind of a gutsy guy. But um, uh, anyway, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, interesting guy, worth your study. Probably the most absolute despot that has ever been on the planet Earth. And uh, he didn't mess around. 
very, very strong guy. And, uh, but he is one that God raises to judge Israel. Now, why am we beating this up so hard? Why are we getting into all this? Well, first of all, this in, gets all entangled through, uh, throughout the Scripture. There are several major milestones in Israel's history. Obviously, the time of the patriarchs of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we're all familiar with that from Genesis. And there's all, obviously get into the era of the monarchy with Saul and David and Solomon and all of that. But one of the major pivotal facts of Israel's history is the 70 years Babylonian captivity. So just as your grasp of the overview of Israel's history, that's really important. And uh, they obviously returned after Babylon, but uh, then came the Medes and the Persians, then the Greeks, and then the Romans, and of course the time of Christ. So you get an, a feeling for the history. But there's some other reasons that this 70-year captivity is so important. It launches, as I say, the period of the times of the Gentiles, which we will be emphasizing. But there's some other issues that are really worth understanding. And that comes down now to verse 10 and 11. Moreover, verse 10, I will take from them the voice of mirth, the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom, the voice of the bride, and the sound of millstones, and the light of the lamp. Very poetic language for judgment. If that sounds familiar to you, the reason it does is it's quoted in Revelation chapter 18, verse 13. And that's a, uh, in, one of the, in chapter 17 and 18 of the book of Revelation, John, the writer, deals with an idiom called Mystery Babylon. We're going to talk more about that also. We're going to discover that Babylon, literal Babylon, is prophesied to be doomed and never again rebuilt. So that gives us all kinds of puzzlement when we get to the book of Revelation. Now, there are some scholars that quarrel with the language in the translation, argue that these prophecies that we're, we'll come to, that prophesy that Babylon will never be rebuilt and so forth, actually doesn't mean literally just for a long time, and that there's, the language could allow for that if you understand the technicalities of the Hebrew. But uh, what seems to be more a consistent uh, uh, frame of thought is that Babylon is, in fact, prophesied not to be put to, after Nebuchadnezzar, they're ultimately going to be destroyed, never again to be rebuilt or inhabited. And we'll examine those prophecies shortly. Now, why do I make a point of that? Because when you get to the book of Revelation, and Revelation deals with mystery Babylon, the writer there is dealing with Babylon idiomatically. And for you to understand what Revelation is really talking about, you need to understand Babylon. So what we do when we get through the book of Revelation, we spend a lot of time understanding Babylon spiritually and the roots and it's the role of Babylon in the history of Israel, which does not start here in Jeremiah. It starts in Genesis, the first uh, uh, empire under Nimrod the hunter and the Tower of Babel and, and that whole bit. And I won't obviously di you know, divert this whole study as a recap of all of that, but be aware of the fact that the book of Revelation makes a big thing of Babylon. And it's interesting that in the middle of chapter 17 and 18, which deals with mystery Babylon, chapter 18, verse 23, you'll find this verse essentially quoted in the book of Revelation. And uh, those of you that are interested in the book of Revelation or want to get, you can refresh on that or dig into the tapes if you like. We won't take the time here other than just calling your attention to that. It's the next verse that I want to call your attention to. And this whole land, what land is he talking about? Israel. 
This whole land shall be a desolation and a horror, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon seventy years. This is one of several places where this phrase is going to occur. It'll occur in verse 12 too. In fact, verse 12, let's just read the verse. And it shall come to pass when 70 years are accomplished that I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, says Lord, for their iniquity and the land of the Chaldeans and will make it perpetual desolations. That's one of the several prophecies that says that when this is over, Babylon's had it. Okay? Now, if you want a test of the fulfillment of prophecy, ask yourself, how many Babylonians have you met? It ain't there. And that's interesting. But there's some other lessons here that I'd like to focus on. Um, And that's this 70 years thing. And for this, this is important enough. In general, I just throw out the references and let you dig on it yourself. But in this case, I think what I'd like to do is, uh, in fact, uh, take you back. And this is so important that let's review some background. Turn to Leviticus 25. Leviticus, of course, has a detailed, all kinds of detailed ordinances and laws. And it's just, a, it's sometimes tough reading, and yet it's just rich with insights. Turn to Leviticus 25, and I'll, um, uh, Moses uh, is at Mount Sinai, and they're saying in verse 2, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, When ye come into the land which I give you, then shall the land keep a Sabbath unto the Lord. That can be a strange idea for you. We all think of the Sabbath day. What we mean by that is the Sabbath for man. The Sabbath for man. That's six days you work, the seventh you honor as the Sabbath day. That's not the only Sabbath. There's also a Sabbath for the land. The whole history of Israel, from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22, is all tied up with the land in a very mystical, special way. You cannot really talk much about the relationship of God and Israel without getting entangled with the real estate, the title deed, the generations and the genealogies which deal with the land conveyance. The land is an integral part of your perception about God's relationship with Israel. But here he says there's a Sabbath. Um, uh, the, the, shall the land keep a Sabbath unto the Lord? Six years shalt thou sow thy field, six years shalt thou prune thy vineyard, and gather in the fruit thereof. But in the seventh year shall shall be a Sabbath of rest unto the land, a Sabbath for the Lord. Thou shalt neither sow thy field nor prune thy vineyard, and that which groweth out of its own accord of thy harvest shalt thou not reap, neither uh, gather the grapes of uh, thy vine unpruned. It is a year of rest unto the land. And the Sabbath of the land shall be food for you, for thee, and for thy servant, and for thy maid, and for thy hired servant, and for thy stranger that sojourneth with thee, and for thy cattle, for which the, and so on. Okay. And it goes into some other interesting things, jubilee years and other exciting stuff. Uh, you get down here to verse um, 20. And if you shall say, What shall we eat in the seventh year? Behold, we shall not sow and gather and increase. Then will I command my blessing upon you in the sixth year, that it will bring forth fruit for three years. Why three? Well, because you not only have to carry through the fallow year, but the seed time and harvest of the fallow. See, in other words, it's thought through, see. 
And verse 20, and you shall sow in the eighth year and yet eat of the fruit until the ninth year, uh, until her fruits shall uh, come in, uh, in ye shall eat of the old store. The land shall not be sold forever, but the land is mine. Who owns the land in Israel? God, you betcha. For ye are strangers and sojourners with me, and in all the land of your possession ye shall grant a redemption for the land. This then gets into the law of redemption, the whole idea that the, in Israel they didn't really sell the land, they leased it. And there's a redemption procedure that is very important. Jeremiah is going to deal with this later in his book, and it's going to give that insight will be essential if you're going to understand Revelation chapter 5 and the seven sealed book and all of that. We could also from here go to Exodus 23, where the same thing is sort of recounted. We will skip that. Let's why we're so conveniently here, let's turn to Leviticus 26. Now, in Leviticus 26, we have a prophecy. Now, this prophecy in verse 32, it says, I will bring the land into desolation, and your enemies who dwell therein shall be astonished at it. And I will scatter you among the nations and will draw you out a sword after you, and your land shall be desolate and your cities waste. Then shall the land enjoy her Sabbaths, as long as it lieth desolate and ye are in your enemy's land. Even then shall the land rest and enjoy her Sabbaths. As long as it lieth desolate, it shall rest, because it did not rest in your Sabbaths when you dwelt upon it. And on it goes. Now, where am I headed? Well, we all know that the Babel, the King Nebuchadnezzar conquered is at Jerusalem and put them into slavery for 70 years. Why did Nebuchadnezzar have them as slaves 70 years. The answer to that turns out to be in 2 Chronicles. Turn with me to 2 Chronicles chapter 36. 2 Chronicles, which is the last chapter of the book of Chronicles, so you can go to Ezra and turn left. Okay. 2 Chronicles 36, and we're talking about the captivity of Judah under Babylon. Verse 10 mentions Nebuchadnezzar and so forth, and Zedekiah and all of that. And we get through here, we'll pick this up about verse 20. And those who had escaped from the sword, he carried away to Babylon, where they were servants to him and his sons, until the reign of the kingdom of Persia. Persia ultimately displaced Babylon, as you know. Verse 21 is your key verse. To fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah. See, Jeremiah is the authority for the 70 years to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed her Sabbaths. For as long as she lay desolate, she kept the Sabbath to fulfill threescore and ten years. You're saying, Chuck, you're kidding. You're trying to tell me that for 490 years, Israel ignored the law of the Sabbath. They kept the Sabbath day and they created all kinds of things, kosher laws, all this other stuff. But they did not keep the Sabbath of the land, for 490 years. And the Lord, in effect, says, okay, guys, you owe me 70. that wild? That's not one of Chuck Mister's crazy hypotheses. It's right here in 2 Chronicles 36, 21, an important verse. Now, that turns out to be, the there are actually four known 490-year period, uh, periods in Israel history, but I'll come back to that. Before we do that, I'd like 
you to turn with me to one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. You all know it well, as students of prophecy, Daniel chapter 9. And you all know the last four verses probably by heart because that's the famous, one of the most famous prophecies in the Scripture, the fabled 70-week prophecy of the book of Daniel. Daniel 9, 24, 25, 26, and 27. And we won't get into that tonight. If you haven't been through the tapes, I commend them to you. But I'm really after the first part of this chapter, the most interesting part, well, I'll say the most interesting, but a very, very precious part of chapter 9 is Daniel's prayer. Daniel prays, and as he prays, he gets intensely worked up, and that's you, you can even feel that in the English. You can feel his pulse quicken in the English. But in chapter Daniel chapter 9, it's the interrupted prayer of the Old Testament. And of course, this prayer gets interrupted by Gabriel coming with this incredible vision at the end. But in Daniel chapter 9, verse 1, in the first year of Darius, the son of Asherus, the seed of the Medes, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, bear in mind now, Daniel's unique in his career, deported as a teenager, put through postgraduate school, lived through the Babylonian period, rose to number two or three, I mean, a heavy dude in the whole operation. They get conquered by the Persians. And Daniel once again ends up being third in the kingdom. So his, his career spans two rival empires. A fascinating guy. Very interesting career. Now, it, incidentally, in chapter 9, about 67 of the 70 years have gone by. Daniel's an old man now. He's no longer a teenager. He's an aged, aged guy. Okay. Now, and I, could, I, I, don't, I don't get it all. I get this one place. I got too many notes. I'll try to skip some of Anyway, verse 2. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by books the number of the years concerning which the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. And I set my face unto the Lord God to seek by prayer and supplications and with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. And I prayed unto the Lord. And then he goes on and makes confession on behalf of his people. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Jeremiah. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store and search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.